0: Good morning, everybody. Thank you for being here today. A lot of places you could have been, a lot of things you could be doing, but you've chosen to come in the house of God and to worship Him, and I pray that you get everything that God wants you to have today. I think He's filled me up this week as I've studied and prepared, and so I would just say put on your seatbelt. Um, I want you to know I wore this message before I preach it, and so uh, (laughs) God has spoken to me. Last week, we looked at the fact that Paul, just like you and me, struggled with sin. That may be a surprise to you, given the fact that Paul was probably one of the greatest church planners, missionaries, pastors, elders, Christians that have ever lived. But please remember, he was not God. He was not God. He was not perfect. He was a sinner who struggled with personal sin. He was saved, right? But he still struggled with sin. We talked about that last week. He lived in earthly flesh just like you and I do. He still had a sin nature. It was alive. He said himself that he was a slave to sin. So I ask you this question. Do you have a sin that enslaves you? I'm guessing everybody does. Paul wrote in Romans seven fourteen. So the trouble is not with the law. He's talking about the Ten Commandments here. Said, our problem's not the Ten Commandments, for it is spiritual and good. Paul said, the trouble is with me. For I am all too human. Can you relate? For I am all too human, I'm a slave to sin. So, yes, even Paul struggled with his sin nature and with his sin. What was interesting to me as I studied this passage of Scripture is that Paul did not address the subject of temptation in Romans chapter 7 and chapter 8. However, there's only one place in these two chapters that does give a hint to the issue of temptation. I point you to Romans 7, verse 7. He asked an interesting question. He said, well then am I suggesting that the law of God is sinful of course not in fact it was the law that showed me my sin in other words me looking at the Ten Commandments revealed that I was a sinner I would never have known that coveting is wrong if the law had not said you must not covet but sin used this command to arouse all kind of covetous desires or temptations within me. If there were no law, then sin would not have that power. What Paul is really addressing, the context of this passage, is the problem of legalism. Those who are legalists, who practice legalism, expect that a set of rules can keep them and everybody around them from sinning. But the more you try to meet God's standards in the flesh, in your own power, by following a set of rules, the more sinful you're going to become. Before the commandment to not covet, people were already sinning against God and wanting what belonged to other people. We see a lot of that today, looking across the fence and wanting what the Joneses want. But once this command was revealed, according to Paul in verse 9, he says, At one time, I lived without understanding the law. In other words, I had no information about what the law said. But when I learned the command not to covet, notice this, the power of sin came to life and I died. Now, there are two things that I think Paul could mean by this. He could be saying that this is when, this moment is when I learned the terrible power of sin and what sin had done to me, and that's when I realized how spiritually lost and separated from God I am. Or it could have meant that this is when I was tempted to sin all the more. My personal opinion is that it meant both. He realized he was lost, but he realized also he was in trouble. The law of God is good, but sin always seizes the opportunity through the commandment to produce more sin. Notice verse 8 again. He said, but sin used this command to arouse, interesting word, arouse all kinds of covetous desires or temptations within me. I say all the time that sin is like eating Lay's potato chips. You can't eat just one. That's what the motto says, right? You can't eat just one. Well, you you won't and you can't stop eating just one potato chip, and sin is very much like that. You will never stop at committing just one sin. How many of you, by raising your hands, would say, I have only committed one sin in my life? I'm spot on, right? When you... Preach the Word of God, you're spot on. Listen, your first sin is a seedbed for committing even more sin. Tony Evans said, have you ever seen a don't touch sign? You know, when you got wet paint on a door or a wall and it says don't touch, what do you want to do? What will a kid do? (laughs) He said the sign itself makes you want to reach out your hand. Likewise, sin conjures up the desire, the temptation, to do the opposite of what the law says. So the more law, apart from the gospel, the more sin. Now, while Paul says nearly nearly nothing about temptation in Romans 7 and 8, he has a whole lot to say about the subject in 1 Corinthians 10. Why? Because he's writing to the Corinthians. (laughs) If you know anything about the Corinthians, they were a sinful bunch of people. Now, if you will allow me, I want us to look inside the window of 1 Corinthians 9 to set the context for what Paul says in chapter 10. So look with me at 1 Corinthians 9, 22, what he says. Paul says, when I am with those who are weak, I share their weakness so that I might bring the weak to Christ. Did you you hear that? He said, yes, I, I try to find common ground with everyone, Doing everything that I can to save some. Not that Paul saved them, but he led them to Christ. He said, I do all of this to spread the good news, and in doing so, I I enjoy its blessings. There's an old saying, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. Well, Paul would never have conformed to the many different worldly cultures that he encountered with all the places that he went However, Paul was always willing to make adjustments and sacrifices in his life to win the lost to Christ, to win lost souls. When I, when I mention the name Lottie Moon, who knows who I'm talking about? Lottie Moon, great Baptist missionary, went to China. On her first trip to China, she went as a southern belle. She was from the south. She tried to change the people To get them to live the way she lived and she failed. No converts first trip. She learned some things and on her second trip to China she became Chinese to win the Chinese. She ate what they ate. She dressed like the Chinese. She lived like the Chinese. And oh, what a difference it made. Many people came to know the Lord. She adjusted. She sacrificed. She even gave half of her daily portion of food to others who were hungry. And eventually that led to her own demise. Paul put his own personal pleasures and comforts and his desires aside to do whatever it took to win the people to whom he preached Christ to. Paul knew that there was a spiritual payday coming somewhere out there in the future where he would be rewarded for his sacrificial service. He knew that there was a prize awaiting for him in glory. The Bible is very clear about that. He says in verse 23, I do all of this to spread the good news, and in doing so, I enjoy its blessings. Paul did what he did, sacrificing, ministering for the Lord to spread the gospel so that people could come to know the Lord and be saved, and so that one day he would share in the eternal blessings of God. The very thought that uh, that people could be saved from an eternity of hell And that he could share in heaven's blessings motivated him to carry the gospel to lost people who had never heard about Jesus and his story. Kind of parallels what Solomon wrote in Proverbs 11.30. The scripture there says the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. Now, break that down. Righteous, who's he talking about? Those who have been made righteous in Christ. Not our own righteousness, but the righteousness that we have in Jesus The fruit of the righteous, the work that we do, the the fruit that we bear, points to the tree of life. And in fact, he says here, he who wins souls is what? Wise. You want to be wise in the Lord? Win people to Christ. Paul was a spiritually motivated believer, and and he, he he was always encouraging other believers like you and me to be motivated servants of the Lord. In fact, the remainder of this chapter is Paul doing his best to to light a fire under the believers there in Corinth. To set them on fire for Jesus. Paul said in verse 24, Remember that in a race everyone runs but only one person gets the prize. You also must run in such a way that you will win. I can assure you that Paul wasn't content to only receive a participation ribbon in the race that Christians are given to run. No, he wanted the gold medal. He wanted to stand on the highest platform. Not to toot his own whistle, but to do his best for God. True athletes don't compete merely for exercise. They compete to win in whatever sport they participate in. No follower of Christ should merely go through the motion of being a Christian. No Christian should be content to warm the bench. We should all run the Christian race to win, right? Run to win. Listen, if it had not been for game nights on Friday night, I promise you I would have never played football. I love football. But there's nothing fun about practicing football. It's a lot of hard work. Most of my injuries came in practice. But I gave it 120%. I practiced hard and gave it all I had to prepare to win on Friday night. I loved to win. I was very competitive. I worked very hard to be the best I could be for the the team and and for our school. All athletes practice strict self-control, Paul says. They they practice discipline. And they do it to win a prize that will fade away, but we do it as Christians for an eternal prize. Paul used sports to illustrate a spiritual principle. I I, I heard a coach say this past week of his team that lost. He said it's simple. We lost because we weren't prepared. I promise you next next week will be different. You gotta prepare to win. My high school football coach, Coach Jim Radford, taught us that if we were going to be able to compete and have a chance to win, we had to be disciplined. Disciplined. That means we had to practice hard. We had to study our enemy or our opponent. We had to eat healthy. Every day. We had to lay off the sodas because they take you win. He said, no drinking, no smoking. Boy, if he caught smoke on your breath, (laughs) you were in trouble. Get your sleep, he said. Stay eligible by making good grades and stay out of trouble. Oh, and yes, come to practice. Come to practice, because if you don't practice, you don't play. Get prepared to win. Christians, it is no different for us. Do you want to stand before God? And be a winner or a whiner. Because you're going to stand before God. What are you living for? What are you living for? Paul wrote Our aim is to please Him. Always. Whether we are here in this body or away from this body, for we must all stand before Christ to be judged. You will not stand at the great white throne judgment if you put your faith in Jesus Christ. You're saved. You won't be there. But you will stand before Christ at the judgment seat of Christ where he will weigh and judge your deeds. You will stand there. You have no choice. He said we will each receive whatever we deserve for the good or evil that we have done in our bodies. Christian, listen to me. You will be repaid for your service to the Lord. You will. There's a reward day coming. You will be rewarded for for the kingdom work that you've done with godly motives. And and here, you know, we sometimes think we we get around the corner and God can't see us. That's right. We think we turn the light out and God can't see in the dark. He sees better in the dark and he sees in the light. He made both. He doesn't need uh, the light to be on to see. God has not missed a single second of your life story. He is constantly watching you. As someone asked me the other day, do you have cameras inside your building? I said, no, we got them on the outside. We don't have them on the inside. Well, God sees out there and he sees in here. Joyce and I went to the movie, a new movie, the other night. We don't go to movies very often, but this one was, uh, I think, was, was promoted to be good called The Hill, The Hill. It's, it's, a, it's a movie about a young man who had a passion to know God and a passion to play professional baseball. That's what got my attention. I live this story. Um, that's all he ever wanted to do. The whole story is about him preparing to be a professional baseball player. The problem is he was born crippled. And they had braces strapped on his legs from a very early age. And he grew up with braces on his legs. He couldn't run, but he was constantly picking up rocks and hitting them with a stick. And he could, he could hit a ball. Okay? I mean, but he, he never allowed those braces to hinder him. I mean, he, he, he was going to outlive those. Uh, it was, he was unbelievably determined to play professional baseball, and he simply refused to let anything stop that desire. It's a great movie. I don't, it's a true story. I don't, I don't want to ruin it for you. I, I would encourage you to go. The sad part about it, we went in there and we thought we were going to be the only people, and I think there were two other, three other couples came in and sat and watched the movie. It's not one of those blood and guts movies, you know, with a lot of language and sex and all that stuff, so people don't go watch those kind of movies. The good ones. But anyway, it, it, the sad part about this movie for me was that this kid had a father who who was a pastor that had never saw a single game that his son played all through school. Not until he was trying out for the big leagues did this father show up, and then not until the last pitch. That his son was thrown in the last inning of an exhibition game. And the kid jacked it out of the ballpark. He was 11 for 11, I think, that night. Unbelievable. It's sad to me that his father refused to watch his son play the game that he was so gifted to play. Listen, Christian. God, your Heavenly Father, hasn't missed a single second of the game that he's gifted you and called you to play. He's seen everything you've ever done since you were called and saved. He's seen all the good. He's seen all the bad. You have not surprised him. There's not a thing that your heavenly Father that has missed, and He will one day reward you accordingly. As Paul penned this letter, he had no idea what the Corinthian believers were going to do with what he was saying what he was writing to them. No pastor ever does. I never know what you're going to do when I, when I stand up here and preach. I never know. We never do. But Paul's mind was made up about what he was going to do, regardless of what other people did. I want you to listen to Paul's solemn resolve in verse 26. He said, so I run straight to our goal, to the goal, to God, to what pleases God with purpose in every step. I'm not like a boxer who misses his punches, just punching out in the air. He said, I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should. Otherwise, I fear that after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. Part of Paul's goal was to never allow himself to be distracted. There are a lot of distractions in our world, a lot of distractions we carry some around in our pocket. You know what I'm talking about? I knew you would. The other part of Paul's goal was not to do anything to disqualify himself from serving the Lord. Distraction to disqualification. Listen, I graduated from high school with no less of a passion to play football than when I stepped on the football, for the, football field for the very first time when I was eight years old. My passion was there. My biggest problem was not my heart. It was my size. I might have weighed 45 pounds soaking wet in full uniform toting my helmet when I played pee- peewee football. In fact, I remember my mom and dad had a, a, a Volkswagen doodle bug. You know what I'm talking about? You know those cubby holes in the back right behind, right in front of the back window? I remember three of us kids... My two buddies in full uniform being in that cubbyhole. That's how small we were. And I'm not joking. It was, you know, looked like a bunch of gnats running around out there on the field. When I graduated from high school, I weighed 145 pounds, and they had me play middle linebacker. Yeah, the guys in front of me weighed like 265 to 285. Okay? I graduated from high school, weighing 145 pounds on a good day. I remember visiting Coach Redford one time when I was in Panama City and found out that he was in the hospital, probably been in the last 10, 15 years. He was in a hospital with food poisoning, and so I I just stopped in to see him, and I walked into the room, and, and when he looked at me, I hadn't seen him in years, he said, good gracious, Green. He said, if you'd have been that big when you played football for me, you'd have killed somebody. And I went, gee, thanks, coach. I love you, too, you know. (laughs) I had the heart. I just didn't have the size. No scouts looked at me. There was no chance of me playing college football. I went on to play college baseball, but not football. That was a bummer for me, because I liked football. In fact, it was so ingrained in me, after I graduated from high school, I wouldn't even go watch a football game. Because I wanted to be out there. I had dreams. I still every now and then will have a dream about playing football. The bummer, really the bummer for me was we had four football players on our team that got a full scholarship to FSU. Now, I'm not an FSU fan, okay? I'm a Gator fan. But, but... <laughs> Some of you are FSU guys. I know some of you are Alabama, Georgia, all that other stuff. But anyway, FSU, major university, they got a full ride to FSU. I, I was never jealous of that. I was thankful those guys earned it. They, they were big guys. They, they deserved to go play that kind of football. Here's the sad part. Within the first six months of them being on that campus, they partied themselves right out of a scholarship all four lost a full ride to a major university and they never set foot on another football field for the rest of their life to play a game. Why? They were distracted and they disqualified themselves. They couldn't handle all the temptations that were thrown in front of them. But then I'm sure that you can't either. I know I can't. I'm being honest. I have weaknesses. So do you. The devil knows them better than you do. How good are you at dealing with temptation? How do you handle temptation? What is your methodology? I don't know of anyone who's ever lived on earth, including Jesus, that hasn't been tempted. Did you hear me? Every human being is tempted. If you haven't been yet, be warned, it's coming. Every person will be tempted. And whatever you're tempted with, you can be sure that others have had to deal with the same temptation before you. Jesus, in fact, it says in Scripture, faced every temptation known to man. So if the devil tempted the Son of God, Jesus Christ, he will come tempt you. That is why the writer of Hebrews wrote in Hebrews 4, 14. He said, that is why, because we will be tempted, tempted, that is why we have a great high priest who has gone into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us cling to him and never stop trusting him. This high priest of ours understood our what? Weakness. Jesus knows our weakness. For he faced all the same temptations that we do, And yet he did not sin. I want to make this abundantly clear to you this morning. Temptation is not sin. Did you hear me? Temptation is not sin. It is Satan's trap to get you to sin. It is the bait that distracts you and disqualifies you. Jesus never sinned even though he was tempted. Temptation doesn't become sin until you act upon it. In other words, it is not sin until you do what you are tempted to do. Sin is sin. And sin leads to greater temptations like potato potato chips. You take one out, you eat it, you're going to eat another. You sin one time, you're going to be tempted to sin again and again and again. This morning, I, I want to. There's, there's three things that Paul brings out in chapter 10 that I think will help us to correctly handle temptation. Three things I want to point out. Please take note of this. I wish to God somebody would have pointed this out. And I also wish that I would have taken this to heart. It had been a whole lot less pain in my life. Okay? Notice in the first 10 verses, Paul talks about the fact that we all can learn from the negative examples of the Israelites. In other words, we can learn from their bad decisions, their bad choices, their sin. And trust me when I say this, what Paul writes here in, in these opening verses is only an abbreviated account of Israel's sin. It would take volumes of book to include a complete narrative of their sinfulness. Hello? Was he right? I don't want you to forget, Paul says, Dear brothers and sisters, what happened to our ancestors in the wilderness long ago, God guided all of them by sending a cloud that moved along ahead of them And he brought them all safely through the waters of the sea on dry ground. As followers of Moses, they were all baptized into the cloud and the sea. In other words, they experienced the miracle of coming through that and how God did that. They had that experience. And all of them ate the same miraculous food, the manna and the quail. And all of them drank the same miraculous water. For they all drank from the miraculous rock. Don't miss this. That traveled along with them. And that rock was Christ. Well, I thought Jesus lived in the New Testament. Yeah, but he was present as the in, uh, you know, pre-incarnate Christ. The scripture talks about him being in the form of the angel of the Lord. The angel of Yahweh. Study that. Don't let it blow your mind. But he was present. He is God. He's eternal. Verse 5 said, yet after this, God was not pleased with most of them, and he destroyed them in the wilderness. They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And if you read scripture, it says that every man above the age of 20 died in the wilderness because of their sin, because they were chosen by God to be the spiritual leaders of their home, and they were blowing it. And God killed every one of them in the wilderness. Above the age of 20. Verse 6 says these events happened as a warning to us. So that we would not crave evil things as they did or worship idols as some of them did. For the scripture says the people celebrated with feasting and drinking. And they indulged themselves in pagan revelry. In other words they were having a drunken party. With all kind of mess going on. Verse 8 takes it a little bit further. He said and we must not engage in sexual immorality. By the way that covers three kinds of sin adultery homosexuality and fornication I go on record that's the word of God okay he said they did they, we must not engage in sexual immorality as some of them did causing 23,000 of them to die in one day That's just one day's worth. Nor should we put Christ to the test as some of them did and then die from snake bites. Can you imagine that? And don't grumble. Don't complain as some of them did for that is why God sent the angel of death to destroy them. Friends, we can learn from their sin. Notice verse 11. We also have to pay attention to God's grave warning. In other words, don't ignore the warning signs. He says, all these events happen to them as examples for us. They were written down to warn us who live at a time when this age is drawing to a close. That's where we're at. That's where we're at, folks. So let me ask you, who's your best teacher? Of all the teachers you've ever had in your life, who is your best teacher? I, I went back and thought about this, and I, I have to include all, you know, elementary school, junior high, high school. In elementary school, it was Coach Gray. Coach Gray. he was One year, he was my fifth grade teacher. He was my PE coach several years. He inspired me to pursue the passion that I had with art. He was a great artist. He inspired me. To draw and to paint. In, in junior high it was Coach Hollowell. He was uh, he was a little coach, a wonderful basketball player. Basketball was not my game. He knew I had a passion for football. But even though I was small, he said, "Go play football. You can do it. You can do it." When I got into high school, obviously it was Coach Redfern. Uh, he is still, you know, he was like a spiritual father to me. My father was not saved at that point in my life. Uh, my real father. Coach Coach Redford became my spiritual father. He was a sponsor of the FCA, the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, and he inspired me to live for Christ. He invested in me, and I still look up to him to this day. We still have contact. But my best teacher of all that I had was my dad. My dad. There are so many things that my dad taught me through the years. I could write books. One of the things I remember that dad said to me, and he impressed on me early, I wish I'd have listened more. But he said, son, I encourage you to learn from other people's mistakes. There's less pain if you learn it that way. I didn't listen. I listened on some things, but not everything, okay? We've all heard the old expression, experience is the best teacher. Experience is the best teacher. It's painful. Some of the best lessons I ever learned, I learned the hard way by making my own mistakes, by by making bad choices and then suffering through the consequences and the pain. You know what I'm talking about. Here in the 11th verse, Paul makes it clear, though, that someone else's experience is the best teacher. The whole idea is that it's best to learn from their pain so that you don't have to experience your own pain. Hear that? Just look around you. People are in pain. There's a reason. Don't do what they've done. Hello? Growing up, I wanted a motorcycle. My friend had a motorcycle. He had a scooter, you know. It was wheels. I wanted one dad said no you're not getting a motorcycle I don't care what it is I build a go-kart <laughs> I'd like to kill myself with it but I built one but my dad wouldn't let me have a motorcycle for a reason and that was because when he was a teenager when he got his license he and a friend of his went together pooled their money together and they bought an Indian motorcycle a big motorcycle for two teenagers and they they you know They swapped it around, one to drive it a little while, the other to drive it a little while. One day, his friend took the motorcycle out, was driving it. He got himself in a high-speeding situation, and it got away from him, and he had to lay it down, and he slid it under a tractor-trailer truck, and and the young man was paralyzed for the rest of his life. My dad never sat on another motorcycle for the rest of his life. Killed his friend. young man eventually died. In the opening verses of this chapter that we just read, we read what Paul wrote about the various events that happened to the Israelites while they were wandering around in the wilderness for those 40 years. And he wrote about the sinful relationship the Israelites had with their worship of pagan idols. And he he wrote about their problem of committing sexual immorality and about their constant grumbling. And he included their painful and yet sometimes even deadly consequences from all of their sin. Sin, according to Solomon, is fun for a season, but it leaves you with regrets and with scars. I can hear what some of you are thinking right now. Not God. But you see, I understand you. A little bit, anyway. Some of you are looking at the sins that we just talked about, and you're going, well, that's not my problem. I don't have their problem. Hey, I know you well enough to know that you do have a sin problem. Everybody does. There is some kind of sin that you're struggling with. Everybody does. Remember the Apostle Paul did. He didn't tell us what his sin was so that we could relate to him. So don't be proud and arrogant. Be humble and be honest. Solomon, one of the greatest sinners that ever lived, said pride will destroy a person. A proud attitude leads to ruin. Don't be proud. It's obvious that Paul didn't want the lessons of old to be lost in the church of Corinth. And what happened to Israel is included in the pages of Scripture as a grave warning for their benefit, but also for ours. It has been said that the consequences are high for any believer in the church age who chooses to follow the sinful example of Israel's wilderness generation. Why? We know better. We know better. Paul wrote, don't be fooled. You cannot cheat God. People harvest only what they plant. If they plant to satisfy their their sinful sinful selves, their sinful selves will be ruined. Another translation says, God is not mocked. For whatever person sows, he will also reap. Paul didn't want the Corinthian believers to fall into sin like the Israelites had done in the past. So they needed to be careful. Well, guess what? We do too. Be careful. Be careful. To do that, the last point that I want to bring out is the fact that you need to know who is really your best teacher. Who is your best teacher? Look at what Paul writes, verse 12. If you think you're standing strong, in other words, if you think you got your act together and you don't have a problem, be careful, for you too may fall into the same sin. But remember that the temptations that come into your life are no different from what others experienced, and God is faithful. He will keep the temptation from becoming so strong that you can't stand up that you can, can't stand up against it. When you are tempted, He will show you a way out so that you will not give in to it. Now, listen to me, Christian. That doesn't mean that when you're tempted, God's going to wave a magic wand over you and keep you from sinning. Are you hearing me? It's more than that. Please understand this. We've all heard that it doesn't matter what you know, but who you know. Well, that may be true if you're trying to make something of your life, yourself, in this life here on earth. Think about this. All my coaches and all my teachers helped me to be who I am today. But just knowing them doesn't make me or doesn't help me when I need to fight temptation. Well, I can get on the phone and still call a few of them. But they're all good men. Don't get me wrong. But they're all fallen men. They're all sinners just like me. They don't have a perfect record fighting temptation. And we all need somebody, someone who knows how to handle temptation, right? And I've only heard of one, and he's not an athletic coach. In fact, he's the son of God. His name is Jesus Christ. He is your very best teacher. Again, look with me at Hebrews 4, 14. That is why we have a great high priest who has gone on to heaven, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us cling to him, cling to him, grab a hold of his leg and hold on for all your life and never stop trusting him. This high priest of ours understands our weakness, our weakness for he faced all the same temptations we do and yet he did not sin. Matthew 4 is a great chapter in the Bible. Matthew's Gospel gives us an amazing account of how Jesus was tempted in the wilderness by Satan. I encourage you to study that passage of Scripture. With each temptation, Jesus used Scripture to refute the lies of Satan. He refused to negotiate with the enemy. And neither did he try to rationalize what he was being tempted with. No, Jesus simply quoted the truths of God And with them, he defeated Satan's lies. Whenever you're being tempted, it's absolutely critical that you do the same thing he did. Listen, let's learn from the success of Jesus and not the failure of man. Do you hear me? Learn from the success of Jesus and not the failure of man. Just think about how often we try to justify the temptation and our eventual sin. And we kind of rationalize it and we say, well, it's no big deal. Everybody else is doing it. That's what we do. Think about how we try to rely on our own power to resist the devil. But friends, listen to me. You and I are no match for Satan in our weakness and our sinful flesh. He eats our lunch too often. There's too many times that he knocks on our door and he tempts us with something and we fall prey. The crazy thing is he's using the same bag of tricks that he used in the garden. He hasn't changed anything. We just aren't smart enough to figure it out. Really? How do you fight temptation? How do you deal with temptation? How do you you keep from being prey to temptation? I want to give you two simple things. Again, no magic wand. God's not going to hit you with a frying pan and go. And you're cured. No. You're going to have to do these things every day for the rest of your life. Learn them now. Make it a part of your life and live as painless as possible. Are you hearing me? Please hear me. Young people especially hear me. Two things you can do. First, meditate on the Word of God. Meditate on the Word of God. Don't overlook that. Joshua said, study this book of law. The the, the scriptures, they, they only had Old Testament scriptures back then. You got a whole Bible, study it. Study this book of law continually. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be sure to obey all that is written in it. For only then will you succeed. Have a quiet time every day. Open up your word. Study the truths of God. Read it. Meditate on it. Let it shape your thinking. Let it shape your attitude. Let it shape your action. Meditate on the word of God. Second of all, memorize the word of God. When's the last time you memorized a a passage of scripture? How many verses can you quote? What if you... Lost your cell phone. Could not pull it up. Pull scripture up on your cell phone. And what if you didn't have the word of God written down? What if they banned the word of God. And you were no longer able to have it. Would you have enough scripture memorized. To continue on and worship God. Don't say those things can't happen. They can. One of the first verses I ever memorized. Was Psalm 119 11, Thy word have I hid in my heart. That I might not sin against thee I hid your word in my heart I memorized it so that when temptation comes I know how to battle it Tony Evans writes by treasuring the principles of scripture in our hearts we train ourselves to love God's way then when we are confronted by temptation we are prepared to reject sin we are prepared to win Christian just how prepared are you to win The game that God has called you to live. To reject sin. Here's here's a powerful passage of scripture. And I want you to understand it's written to young people, okay? I wish our kids were in here. I wish we could get this across to everybody. But especially the young. Psalms 119 verse 9. How can a young person stay pure? Listen, it's a whole lot easier to stay pure than it is to get pure. Did you hear me? Because once you're there, you're there. Okay? You can start over. But it's better to stay pure. Amen? How can a young person stay pure? By obeying your word and following your rules. I have tried my best to find you don't let me wonder from your commandments. Your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Bless are you, O Lord. Teach me your principles. Who's your best teacher? Who are you letting teach you? I pray to God that you're letting God be your great teacher. When you do, know this. Scripture says God's faithful. Do you know Him to be faithful? I do. God is faithful. He will keep the temptation from becoming so strong that you can't stand up against it. When you are tempted, notice this. He will show you a way out so that you will not give in to it.